This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone, on this uh, All Saints Day. Uh, some very um, devastating news on the international scene. The uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is condemning the killings of civilians, and a spokesman says he's appalled over the escalating violence in Gaza. For a second straight day, Israeli warplanes bombed a refugee camp near Gaza City. It's not clear how many people were killed or injured, but the Hamas run Gaza Health Ministry now reporting more than 8,800 Palestinians have died. Guterres is also once again calling for the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages taken from Israel by Hamas during its surprise attacks on October the 7th. Two Canadians are still missing. Well, the world is watching with great despair as the war in Israel intensifies. A growing number of people speaking out over Israel's response to the terrorist attack on October the 7th. Lorraine Michael is among them, and she joins me now. Well, hello, Lorraine Michael. Hello, Linda Swain. How are you? I'm all right. So uh, this is a very distressing time as the world watches what's happening in the Middle East, but none more so than people who know the area and have family in the area. What do you make of it all? Well, it is very, very distressing, and uh, what I'm very disturbed about is that we don't have um, my government in particular, the government of Canada, and other key governments calling for a ceasefire because of the humanitarian crisis that uh, is in place. You know, as of this morning, uh, 8,800 civilians have been killed in Gaza. You know, what happened on October 7th, what uh, was done by Hamas was absolutely horrendous. It was terrible. But what is continuing to be done by the Israeli government and military is also tremendously horrendous and terrible. And the humanitarian crisis has got to be dealt with, and there has to be a ceasefire in order for that to happen. And I'm just so upset that our own Canadian government that our prime minister is not joining in the voices for that ceasefire. It has to happen. We have a, a little uh, ease happening today, um, and you know, in uh, over there, in that the border crossing between Egypt and Gaza uh, is open at Rafah, and so you do have goods starting to move back into. Uh, Gaza to help take care of the needs. I mean, everything is serious as as medical supplies as well as food and everything that that people need on a daily basis for their lives. So that that has happened, but that isn't a ceasefire because while that is happening in the south end, uh, the Israel military is still um, you know attacking aggressively the north end and especially Gaza City. So uh, it's it's awful what's going on. And the governments on this planet, the global community, has to come together in negotiating for ceasefire to happen immediately. Netanyahu, uh, as of uh, Tuesday, was saying um, a ceasefire is not possible. He says a ceasefire is tantamount to a surrender to Hamas. Uh, so it doesn't sound like his uh, mind is going to be changed anytime soon. What will this mean for Palestinians for and people in, in neighboring communities like uh, Lebanon? 
Well, what it is meaning is that you're going to have more innocent lives lost. You're going to have more people trying to get out of Gaza uh, in order to be safe. You're going to have what Netanyahu himself has said he wants. I mean, he just wants Palestinians out and I mean, that's his goal. And so there has to be, um, you know, obviously there's behind the scenes stuff happening all the time. What happened today with the opening of the uh, crossing with Egypt, according to the news that I have read so far, was negotiated um, with Qatar being the country that helped with the negotiations to make that happen. So behind the scenes, the uh, countries like the U.S. In, in particular, like the U.S., have to find the way to to reach Netanyahu inside, get inside of him and reach him to, you know, to show him how what he's doing is not the way to get what he wants or what is just you know, it's uh, so there's a lot of work that has to go on inside. And that's why, you know, I think people are you will see the demonstrations continuing, rallies continuing. Uh, and there was a wonderful one here in St. John's on Sunday. There's going to be another one next Sunday. What people are asking for is stop the carnage, the killing of Palestinians, innocent Palestinians. This is not the way to deal with what happened on October 7th. It, it's, you know, and and even if somebody said an eye for an eye, well, the numbers of those who were killed on October 7th and the numbers of Palestinians, civilian innocents that have been killed since, is much more than an eye for an eye. So, and I don't believe in an eye for an eye, but, you know, there are people who quote that. So it has to stop, you know, and you mentioned Lebanon. Yes, people in southern Lebanon already there have been some effects that can get worse. I personally have relatives in the north of Lebanon. They actually are quite safe where they live. They're up in the mountains and in the north of Lebanon. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's horrendous what is happening and the global community the, has to be able to get through to Netanyahu. He People in, that, in, in uh, Israel, uh, Jewish people in Israel, are starting to protest Netanyahu. Um, people within the Likud, the, the government sector, are starting to say, be upset with him. So pressure from the outside, I think, will help with getting more pressure from the inside of Israel. I think the two things have to go together. It's a battle for survival. It's a battle for survival for the Palestinians in Gaza. It's a battle for survival of the nation of Israel, according to many in that country. Do you, are there bigger players at play? A lot of people have said you know, that Gaza did not act alone on October the 7th. Is it possible that you know, this is all being fed by something much larger, perhaps Iran? I'm not going to get into to those bigger questions because I don't have all the information, but I do know that the uh, the powerful group here is the Israeli military. There is no way that Hamas has the um, the um, same level 
of, uh, you know, of, uh, uh, what's the word I want, uh, of arms. <clears throat> and the same, uh, it doesn't have the, the air power, it doesn't have the sea power. I mean, Israel has all the power right now when it comes to what's going on. All the, you know, the fighting from uh, uh, on the side of Gaza from Hamas is ground you know, uh, ground actions. Uh, but you have air and naval uh, power that Israel has. So it's, um, you know, the, the imbalance uh, there alone is a message to people. Uh, and, uh, you know, Israel, is, is when it comes to military, is a powerful country. Um, Hamas is a, uh, you know, a group inside of uh, Gaza that is fighting for Gaza. I may disagree with, with tactics they have used, but they do not have the power that Israel has. They do not. Lorraine, Michael, thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Linda. Bye-bye. And a, uh, another rally is being held in the capital city area this coming Sunday. Well, uh, coming up, Seamus O'Regan is grilled in Ottawa on the federal government's carbon tax. This is News Talk on VOCM. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Well, the MP for St. John's South grilled on Parliament Hill yesterday by reporters on the whole issue surrounding the federal government's carbon tax. Last week, if you recall, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, flanked by members of his Atlantic Liberal Caucus, including Seamus O'Regan, announced a three-year pause on implementation of the federal carbon tax on home heating fuel in this region. That's drawn the ire of other provinces who say they want the same exemptions placed on other forms of heating fuel, including natural gas. And of course, all of this has uh, been fired up in part uh, because of some uh, recent commentary, including uh, um, some uh, um, comments by uh, Goody Hutchings, who said, well, you know, if uh, the Prairie Promise provinces want, um, you know, the same kind of things, they should elect more liberals. Well, here's uh, Seamus O'Regan speaking with reporters outside the House of Commons yesterday. You know, this is this is how we're going about it. And do you think it's enough to help you in the, in the in the polls? Because now it seems like now that this one um, breach has been created, you know, some environmentalists are saying the carbon tax is just going to crumble. Do you think it's actually enough to help you in the polls and be worth the cost? I guess? It's not about well, look, helping with the polls. I, I don't like the apocalyptic talk. This is this is not the case. This is a case where we saw a very real problem, um, and we're trying to fix it. What about that? To, to gain back the credibility you lost on your environmental message. Well, that depends on who you're talking to. I mean, there's an, you know, there's a very reputable ecological institute out of Halifax who thinks this is exactly the right thing to do. I think the proximity to the problem sometimes matters. Certainly people in Atlantic Canada, including environmental groups, would differ with that statement. Well, Pierre Poilievre, you're now, now a target for Pierre Poilievre. He's saying, look at their, their environmental plan. It's not correct. He's the leader of the opposition. Well, I've always been a target for Pierre Poilievre. What, so this, this criticism that this by uh, exempting this one type of oil 
shows that if there's enough political pressure, perhaps more exemptions could be made. Does this no. weaken the, the credibility? And this of the is not policy? one type of oil. This is one that's 50% of households in Prince Edward Island, 36% in Nova Scotia, 22% in Newfoundland and Labrador. That fundamentally affects low-income people. I think that we've been very consistent in making sure that we help low-income people in very mm -hmm. trying times. Could there be more under the tax? I mean, the tax it just came into effect in those provinces July 1st. You knew that before. Why didn't you plan ahead? Next question. No, but why didn't you plan ahead? Because that's the argument here is that there's always been a volatility in home heat and oil prices. So why wasn't there some planning that this might happen instead of letting it happen and then have to react? retroactively, if you will. One of the nice things about the price on pollution, and one of the reasons we chose it, is because it is market friendly and it's market responsive. So sometimes you have to wait for the response in order to find out, okay, is this measure working? How can we tweak it? How can we move it? And by doing that, because you're adapting to market conditions, to how people's behaviors, to their household incomes, we could never have projected uh, you know, the, the times that we live in right now, two, three years ago, when I was Minister of Natural Resources and we introduced the heat pump program. So you know, you were always going to be in a position where it's like, why didn't you, where, why didn't you do it then? Why didn't you do it then? Why didn't you do it then? Well, you know, we thought we were making a good start on it. We know now now we need to improve it. Uh, we need to make it almost completely accessible to people. And now we're in a position where we will be giving people free heat pumps under household median income and above that, interest-free. I think that's a really good place to land. On the heat pump issue, um, you said you want to work with other provinces on this. A bunch of them are saying this is unfair, this is divisive. Do you see that being a barrier to actually working with them to get that goal accomplished? I just got to keep working harder with them. Look, when I took Minister of Natural Resources and Minister of Labor, uh, both of those positions, first places I flew with Alberta and Saskatchewan. If we don't have Alberta and Saskatchewan on site, we're never reaching that zero. That's a fact. So whoever is there, I will work with them. And if this is an issue, I will deal with it. It is a very personal issue for me because I am uh, a minister from an oil-producing province. What, what do you make of Minister, uh, Premier Mo saying that he will no longer collect the carbon tax? Uh, sign up for our heat pump home heating oil program because any province can. So uh, you know the unfairness behind this issue. But what I'm talking it's about clear to me. collecting the tax. If they don't collect the tax, what happens? I, 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 that's beyond my remit. So uh, I'm not going to pass a comment on it, other than to say if it's an issue of fairness, this program is open to him as it was accepted by the Atlantic Premier. We are hearing that around the cabinet table, not all ministers are happy with the decision. Do you feel that this is dividing cabinet or caucus? What's your what's your take on that? You know, I'm not talking about the mood around the cabinet table. No. No, it's not good. To, no, it's frankly a career hazard if you start talking about that sort of thing. So, so when you won't answer Ines's question about why didn't you do this before, is it because you don't want to? No, no, no. I, I think I think I did. I think I did following. No, no. It's just that this is imperfect. Trying to figure out this is an imperfect thing. And, you know, as I said when I was interviewed last night, get ready. Like, if you think this is messy, this is, we are the fourth biggest producers of oil in the world, the fifth the biggest producers of natural gas, and we are attempting to hit net zero and do it in a way that it doesn't affect people in the pocketbook. This is the biggest single challenge, I would argue, that is confronting this country right now. It is going to go on for a long time. It will be tough, and it will be messy, and it will be hard. And this is just one of many, many days like this.
So that's some of what uh, Seamus O'Regan um, had to say uh, by, after being grilled by reporters in Ottawa. You could hear some of those questions very pointed and very direct, and uh, some of the answers, not so much. Um, uh, when one of the questions was put to him uh, over, is this uh, dividing the cabinet, um, Seamus O'Regan uh, declined to comment, saying uh, that's it's a career hazard to do so, uh, and we all know uh, what how that's... Uh, landed certain politicians in the past but it's certainly dividing the country i can guarantee and when you make exemptions for one uh is that fair and is it fair to make comments like um uh, you know, political comments about it. Uh, anyway, it's, <laughs> it, it is messy. I'll, uh, I'll give him that. It's uh, messy and um, uh, it's problematic. And uh, um, it remains to be seen now how uh, the uh, federal government uh, continues to deal with this very vexing issue of the carbon tax. Uh, I think it's... Um, um, Fair to say that it is a very problematic situation. Um, Claudette, did I hear you say you didn't have very many trick-or-treaters in your CBS, one of the fastest-growing areas in Newfoundland and Labrador? <laughs> well, I mean, where I am, I'm on a main highway. Oh. Most people are going to be on oh, a yeah. uh, cul-de-sac or they're going to be where there are a lot of houses. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, this is something... And a little less traffic. The littlest, yeah, I mean, it's quite, you know, you, d- you don't want your kids going <laughs> up and down the main road. And plus, for the most part, we either get none or just a couple of relatives, so... It's not really. What about you, though? We did. It, it's the most, uh, most kids had? I've seen. Yeah, we had about 30, 30 plus. Did you have enough? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, we still had uh, plenty left over. Um, but, um, which is unfortunate. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, and some really creative uh, costumes. I, as I was driving home, just after we came off the air yesterday, Claudette, as I was driving home, I saw somebody walking up the road. You know, with one of those <laughs> those blow-up costumes are a hoot, man. Uh, with one of those ones where it's the alien holding on to somebody yeah, and carrying him around. my nephew has one of those costumes. I saw one of those yesterday, too, and I, was, I find them hilarious. Oh, be- you can't stop looking at it. No, because even if you you know how the costume works but it's so good that you think that you know the alien is holding you yeah it's it's funny oh it's hilarious i love uh, i love it i i you know it almost caused a traffic hazard for me because i was looking (laughs) (laughs) and like you say now you know exactly how it works uh but it's just so convincing to see it and it's something it takes your brain a second or two to try to process it does um and uh when it comes to those blow-up costumes i had one of those t-rexes come to the door which was great oh Uh, the little arms just make me laugh they kill me yeah uh but did you see Richard Duggan's costume no oh yeah he he was in costume he was in costume last night uh oh I don't have the picture on me it's on my phone somewhere I can't uh, find it right now but he uh was uh the big the big eyeball thing from Monsters Inc oh um what's the name on that I'm not sure because but I know what you're talking about but the name is escaping me Ricky is in the newsroom now no doubt Uh, Mike Wazowski Mike Wazowski thank you Sarah there you go (laughs) and uh it was brilliant I saw pictures I saw video um and he had to be led around (laughs) by his wife because uh he couldn't see very well once he got outside but uh oh it was brilliant and uh he had a ball 
And it was cool out. I noticed a lot it of families was were bitterly cold. Yeah. Uh, after each kid got their treats from me last night, I was like, careful on the stairs. <laughs> oh, yeah, because the, it was a little bit, you know. Yeah, and slippery. it turned to slush at some point, so. Uh, we didn't have that much snow uh, down in the bowl mm-hmm. uh, in the harbor. Um, but, you know, once you got up to these elevations here up on Kemet Road, there's a fair bit of snow. But uh, uh, in the downtownish area, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of snow, but there was that little bit of frostiness, you know. And men, did we have a lot of frost this morning? We certainly did. Yep. I, I was out trying to help the birds with a couple of little snacks, and uh, they had to kind of work for it. <laughs> And uh, I have a um, some poor flowers that were, you know, bravely hanging in there. Did you? They're uh, done now. <laughs> that mine are always done because I just don't have a green thumb. Did you put out any pumpkins this year? No. Oh, I did. I, I can't wait to take them in and start using them. For what? <laughs> well, pure pumpkin puree. Oh, okay. Or yeah, pure pumpkin because that's a fortune in a can now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Before I used to just throw out my pumpkins. No, no. The cans are what are they between six and eight dollars a can now for pure pumpkin. Wow. So, so I guess all the people that put their pumpkins out on the road and then run over them in their cars. Oh, I uh, hate that. Are wasting a whole lot of money. They certainly are between the pulp and the seeds and also certain businesses because I remember there was one in Conception Bay South each year uh, too good to crow with Stephen Ivany he has chickens and I know that people used to drop off the uh, pumpkins to his business so that at least the uh, the animals the farm animals would be able to avail of the because what are you going to do with them unless you're going to the pumpkin walk tonight at in city of St. John's oh yeah that's great because that's another idea oh some great yeah and there's so many creative pumpkins out there honestly yeah and they're still good yeah oh lovely um Thanks for that, Claudette. <laughs> <laughs> I digress, You've given right? me something to do this evening. <laughs> um, we'll be back right after the news with Sarah Strickland. This is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, a lack of progress on development of a new penitentiary to re- replace HMP appears, uh, sorry, parts of which uh, date back to the mid-1800s, appears to be delayed by the cost. For years, both inmates and the union representing staff have raised serious questions about conditions in the aging facility. Most recently, the room used for visitation had to be closed because of the discovery of black mold. Here's some of the debate in the House of Assembly today between the opposition's loyal Driscoll and Infrastructure Minister John Abbott. Why is it taking years of delays and excuses for Liberal government to finally tell the people the truth? The Honourable Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Uh, speaker, thank you for the opportunity to respond. Uh, the replacement of the Her Majesty's Penitentiary, or His Majesty's Penitentiary now, new owner, uh, uh, is a priority for this government priority for my department and certainly a priority for me. We are working through the details to see how we can finance and deliver on this project. It will happen and it will happen under this administration. Stay tuned. Thank you. The Honourable the Member of Caroline. Thank you, Speaker. We're staying tuned eight years now. The prison should be built by now. Even your Liberal friends cannot get a blank check on this one. Speaker, a $200 million project has ballooned over $550 million. When are the Liberals finally going to come clean on this project? The Honourable Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. 
Again, Speaker, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I don't think this is a matter of coming clean. Uh, it's a matter of making sure we spend the taxpayers' money to the best effect. We know that the cost of all our public infrastructure is increasing because of the uh, cost of inflation, and particularly when it comes to large infrastructure projects such as the penitentiary and some of our other projects. So we are working very closely uh, with the design of that uh, particular project, with the costing of that project, before we make the final decision to move forward. And that will be happening in a very short order. Thank you. The Honourable the Member for Fairyland. Thank you, Speaker. At least one minister is trying to come clean with it anyway. The story goes on to say there's unanimous support when in government to replace the 164-year-old facility. Speaker, if that is the case, what is the hang-up? Lack of political will? The Honourable the Member for Transportation Infrastructure. Well, I think if I just quote, uh, uh, Speaker, if I just quote back, there is unanimous support on this side of the House, and I do believe there is unanimous support in, this, in the entire House to make sure we replace the penitentiary as soon as possible. It is a long overdue. It's been promised for, over, for almost 20 years, if not longer. We are seized on this project as one of our uh, significant priorities for infrastructure for this province. We will be moving forward with it, and uh, it's important, certainly for uh, the, uh, the inmates, for the staff that work there, for the families that are also having to uh, deal with their kids that are in that facility. So it's important we get it right, and we do this in the most cost-effective way. And that's what I'm focused on, and we will be announcing our plans in due course. The Honourable Member Fairland. Minister, you spent several years doing due diligence. When are we going to get the answer? That's what the people need to know. The Honourable Member's Transportation Infrastructure. Uh, I don't know if the fourth time will we'll, uh, we'll get through. As I, as I said earlier, and as I said to the media, and we have said internally, I said to my, uh, my colleagues here on this side of the House, we want this project to move forward. We want it to succeed. We owe it to our society to make sure if we are going to have prisons, they meet today's standards. The current one doesn't in many respects. And the staff there are, are compromised in their ability to deliver the uh, effective and safe programming that they want to do. And we've heard many media stories uh, about the conditions there at the penitentiary. We're making sure we keep that facility functioning, that it is safe, while we plan and build the Order. new facility. So that's a bit of the debate between uh, Loyola O'Driscoll uh, with the opposition and Minister John Abbott uh, on the government side over um, HMP and what's happening with that particular facility. Well, when we, um, oh, wait now, what are we going to do? What are we going to do here? We're going to go here. The provincial, <laughs> the provincial government, sorry, I get so easily distracted, is moving forward with new modernized municipal legislation aimed at making municipal decision-making easier. Municipal Affairs Minister John Hagee today outlined the new legislation, which is undergoing second reading in the House of Assembly. Highlights include increased autonomy and flexibility for towns in the province, providing them with broad power to enact and enforce bylaws, and reducing the number of times where ministerial approval is needed. Well, if passed, the Towns and Local Service Districts Act will be used as a guide for for new legislation governing the cities of Mount Pearl, Corner Brook, and St. John's, all of whom have their own municipal legislation. Well, Municipal Affairs Minister John Hagee spoke with reporters earlier today. 
It's a long-awaited piece of legislation. The uh, MNL and PMA have been looking for this for years, and we've done fairly extensive consultations, kind of what we heard. Uh, and really, if you put that what we heard document with what you've got, you'll see this considerable uh, match between them. But essentially, it moves the legislation framework for towns and local service districts into a, a permissive frame. Uh, the towns have purposes. Under those purposes, they can make bylaws that are pretty wide-ranging. They have a whole series of taxation options that weren't necessarily open to them before. There's enforcement opportunities there that weren't there before. Um, there's um, incentives or uh, potential incentives around businesses and economic development. Uh, and um, there's set against that autonomy a significant layer of accountability and transparency. You know, their, their council meetings have to be open. They can close them, but the reasons to close it are actually listed in the Act uh, and uh, those kind of things. And similarly for LSDs, um, there is access now to some of their documents. We've had consultations now that go back some years. Um, there are some extremely well-functioning LSDs who have been keen to see what this piece of legislation would entail. They, uh, are, what we've presented is what we understand uh, would appeal to them. There is a flip side. There is a little bit more accountability. But again, with greater power comes greater responsibility. Regionalization, as it was originally mooted, I think, was discussed by my predecessor and really ruled to be not practical for large parts of the province. So what we're doing is looking at regionalised services and options for that. It's baked into the Act, and indeed municipalities can do it currently if they wish to. Um, groups of nearby communities could collaborate on fire services, on accounting, on garbage collection, these kind of things. How they do that is a lot clearer in this new Act than it has been under previous uh, legislation. And indeed, we've actually got a grant application out that closed yesterday on regional um, community collaboration grants. We're going to look at those now over the next uh, little while and see what we can do to facilitate that. But any three communities were able to apply for grants for um, housing coordinators, for example, or to do a trailway between communities. So we're trying to encourage that because of capacity issues. What one or two communities couldn't do by themselves when they kind of club together, uh, their resources increase and they can do things between them. And that is Municipal Affairs Minister John Haggy outlining uh, new municipal legislation um, introduced into the House of Assembly, going through second reading now, um, that will uh, help um, with uh, municipalities and their decision-making process. Well, when we come back, uh, some good news. We're going to talk uh, Newfoundland Growlers, very exciting new season now underway. And uh, I must say, I've been down to see a few games lately and uh, really exciting hockey really fast-paced hockey um it you, you can feel the energy coming back into uh uh the uh, mary brown's uh, uh, center of course there's always great energy down there anyway uh and we're going to talk about uh, some really a really good deed 
Um, and it's going to put a smile on your face, Claudette. Oh, I love ending with yeah, stuff oh, like that. Oh, it's a lovely, lovely little story, and we'll tell you more about that when we come back after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, the Newfoundland Growler is looking to get back on the winning side of things during the first road trip of the season starting this weekend. It follows a fast-paced practice at uh, Mary Brown's Centre late this morning. Growlers head coach Matt Cook says the first road trip of the year. Exciting and a good opportunity to grow as a group. He spoke with reporters, including VOCM's Ben Murphy earlier today. So let's just start off with, before we get into the upcoming road trip, just a little bit about last weekend. Um, three and three with South Carolina, one win. What were some of your main takeaways from that series against South Carolina? I mean, I, that was our first time up against a real veteran team, and I think that they really proved their experience against us. And we, when we got discombobbled a little bit in D-zone coverage, we didn't sort it out very well. Uh, we're a young group that wants to take on more responsibility individually when sometimes in those scenarios you just have to let a man do his job and so learning through that we'll get a good work work week in in practice this week learning and understanding these own coverage and um you know would think that this weekend it'll be a lot better and why is it important to have a good series like that and go up against a tough opponent so early on and have those points to learn from i mean everyone loves the win but there were there were bruises in the games the first weekend, but we were three and zero, and it's hard to really have buy into corrections when you're winning games. And so when you when you lose games, and sometimes when you lose games big, it's an eye opener for players to really understand and believe and trust in the process and force themselves to uh, really want to get better. And what can you learn from a team like South Carolina with that veteran presence they do have? I mean, they had patience. They had patience with the puck. They they move together. They stay really connected. They, they play a style and brand of hockey that we want to play long term. And so I think that there's a lot of video and uh, teaching moments of using how they played the game to teach our players this is how we want to play. Now heading out to Trois-Rivières, this team already has a pretty good rivalry built with Trois-Rivières. How do you prepare for now what's going to be a completely different test again? I mean, pre-scout happened, started happening right after last weekend, right? So we kind of know and understand who Trois-Rivières is and, and how, what their threats are and build out a game plan, you know, so that we can go out and be successful and then really try and focus this week practices into shoring up some of our mistakes so that... Uh, we can continue to push forward, especially with the timing of it. I, we, did, we had four days of practice before we started the first weekend and then two days of practice before we got into the second series. And so there, there hasn't been a ton of body of work for us to really trust and rely on one another to be in certain spots, which just puts it that much more emphasis on the ability to communicate in real time on the ice. This is going to be your first road trip uh, for the team. Is, is, there, is, it, is it exciting for you as the coach to be able to head on the road like this to take on another team in the ECHL? Or is this just another game? How do you approach this? I mean, I, this is my first road trip in this scenario, and so there's a lot of unknowns for me. And I've heard some horror stories about travel around here and getting on and off the island. And so, um, you know, look, looking forward to some of those bumps in the road. And, and you know, we've prepared the, the guys for that. But I think it's exciting. It's an exciting time to go and spend time at the hotel, be a group, and really be outside of home and where we can just function as a, as a group and, and learn each other a little better. 
Uh, you came out and spoke to the players uh, just before you came out and spoke to us. Can you talk about what announcement you made there, Coach? So, super cool news. Uh, Mr. Berezowski is being named ECHL Rookie of the Month, and I think that that's super cool for our group. Um, Bear does everything right. He goes out and puts the work in every day, and I think he's an example that others can learn. And, I, you know, one of, my, one of the things I said to them is hopefully you can utilize this as motivation to, for others to go out and want to earn that, that, that award. And that is Growlers head coach Matt Cook uh, on the eve of heading uh, out to Trois-Rivières for the first uh, road trip of the season. Well, uh, I know the news has been, um, wow, the news has been heavy. <laughs> I've been in this business for a very long time and, you know, you know, you, you, you get through it, you pump it out. But uh, I got to say, good news is always welcome yeah and so. we love to tell good news we really do people might think that you know we're all you know doomsayers and all this stuff but no 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 we we journalists and reporters love good news and here's a great little piece of good news today and we tripped upon this uh volunteers at saint Teresa's food bank in saint john's were blown away today with a major donation received this morning from a group of students and hockey players at waterford valley Hi. Uh, the whole effort was led by Emmett Cochran of the Waterford Valley Warriors. Well, Austin Holly joins me now. Well, hello, Austin. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. So you run the St. Teresa's Food Bank, and we all know what demand has been like lately, especially with rising uh, grocery food prices. So I'm sure um, any donations come as a welcome um, uh, surprise for you. But uh, what did you find? What did what happened this morning? Tell us what happened. Well, uh, two weeks ago, I got a call uh, from Emmett Cochran. He's a grade 12 student. uh, at at Waterford High and heading to Munn next year, and uh, his hockey team and his outreach uh, group decided they would do a fundraiser for our food bank, St. Teresa's. Uh, just uh, as a matter of uh, of interest, I, I I don't run the food bank or not in charge. We have 72 volunteers who are totally committed uh, to this project, uh, to the organization, and. Uh, We've been very blessed to have donations coming in from the public and from the uh, parish, our community, uh, but we've never received a donation of this size and and this amount of food. Gosh, uh, the three SUVs were uh, loaded to the top, and uh, now we have hardly any room left in the pantry. There's so many groceries came in. So this young man is to, to be commended and, and his full group for uh, what they have done. They took the initiative. They said, we're going to do a food drive. They blitzed the neighborhood. And when we walked in this morning, the three of us, we couldn't believe the amount of groceries that were there. And they had it all bagged and all ready to go in the vehicles. So what will something like this mean? What would, how, you know, how would you normally have, and how long would it take to, to collect that kind of, of food? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know because we haven't gone through it yet. There's so much there, uh, but uh, Emmett had written me and asked me what types of uh, um, food we would like, and I told him uh, non-perishables, especially like uh, like craft craft dinner and milk and soups and and so forth, and that's what they provided. 
And, uh, you know, our costs have gone up about 24 percent in the last uh, year, last two years. Um, For example, in in September of last year, we had about 187 hampers given out. Uh, This year in September, we gave out 268. So that is the kind of increase we're noticing in food banks all around the city. And it's getting more difficult uh, each month to come up with uh, the amount of groceries that we need in order to provide hampers to our needy families. So any donations are greatly needed, but this donation must be (laughs) extraordinarily welcomed. Yes, that is correct. I I would use those terms, extraordinarily welcome, because... uh, but we were also impressed with the with the social action of of these young people and their commitment and and their desire to to be involved in the community. I, I think that's very laudable. Well, we're so happy that you shared this with us, Austin. Uh, thank you so much. Well, look, I'm I'm only delighted to pass along a good bit of news, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, and and good news should go a long way, and it should be promoted. So I'm very happy to have done that. Yes. And isn't that lovely? Just imagine now a hockey team at Waterford Valley High, the Waterford ha- Valley Warriors, uh, got together, wanted to do something good. Uh, they contacted St. Teresa's and uh, three SUVs full of groceries. Well, you should see the pictures. We're going to have them up on VOCM.com tomorrow. Just extraordinary. What an effort. I love that. And it also means, though, that all the places that they went to pick up the food, that people in the time where the cost of living is so high, they're willing to part with it as well. So hats off to all those people who um, allowed them to get the food from you because it's pretty hard for people to part with it these days as well. And uh, Austin really wanted me to talk to Emmett, but when I asked him for his number, he says, I don't know. (laughs) So uh, we weren't able to connect with Emmett today, but we're hoping to do it and see what, you know, what the motivation was there. I know a lot of sports teams and community groups and those kinds of things often get together and we've seen the need that's out there particularly with uh, what we've seen now you know people camping out across from confederation building and down uh around colonial building and borrowing park and the like um and other communities across newfoundland and labrador we're starting to see similar kinds of things and uh, people want to help they want to do something to help um and i guess um the waterford valley warriors sort of honed in on that and uh and uh, wow, the results were just extraordinary. So uh, and they needed to be commended for sure, uh, because on Halloween night, I mean, you think that kids would want to be doing anything else, but but uh, there they go, giving to back to society. I love that. No, uh, well done, well done to uh, the Waterford Valley Warriors, the players and students there. Uh, congratulations, well done. If I could give you a award, I would. I'm sure at some point somebody's going to be recognizing them publicly. Aside from here on the radio and in uh, news so uh, just uh, wonderful news well um, also in the vein of sports uh, Olympic gold medal winning skip Brad Guju isn't sure he's going to play the World Curling Federation's Pan-Continental Championships again He's not blaming TSN for dropping television coverage of the games from Kelowna, B.C., but he says there are other issues, uh, such as the event being held in a curling club where where both the men and women are forced to share locker room space. 
uh, warm-ups that are taking place outdoors. And um, I don't know what the temperature is like in Kelowna, B.C., but uh, warm-ups can't be, <laughs> you know, all that practical outdoors. And they can't watch uh, practice sessions uh, so not what uh, Brad Guju and his rink are used to, for, for sure. Mm-hmm. They've played in some of the, um, wow, some of the most premier curling events in the world, uh, the Olympics, no less. So uh, and come home with a gold medal, just saying. Uh, so the WCF says it will examine uh, some of the successes and challenges once the event is complete. So any curly fans out there uh, weren't able to watch it on TV, that's for sure. But uh, anyway, uh, there you go. A lot of curling fans in this province for sure. Well, that's it for us for today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. I am off for the remainder of the week, uh, taking care of a bit of uh, business. So um, uh, I think it's Richard Duggan will be in with us uh, on Friday and perhaps Brian Callahan tomorrow. I stand to be corrected. Stay tuned. Uh, I know they're already working on some pretty exciting shows, so stay tuned for that. And uh, have a great and safe um, weekend, everybody. Bye-bye for now.